What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Book of Jude. This is season two. This is episode 31, and we are going to conclude the Bible series right now, today. At the end of this episode, we will be concluding the Bible series. It's been a lot of work. So without any further ado, let's get in it. I hope you have a Bible and something to take notes on and with. We're going to get into more of the variants, the so-called contradictions. And in this episode, I'm going to end with the major variants in the New Testament, the ones that I'm telling you, yeah, this don't belong in the Bible. So stay tuned for that. But we're going to go through in the beginning, we're going to go through the ones that, you know, the atheist websites and all the people who think the, the God's word isn't God's word, all the ones that they bring up, and we're going to give, provide solutions. So uh, let's get into it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. All right, let's look at some more of the 1% uh, quote-unquote contradictions in the Bible. Matthew 13.55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James and, and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Matthew what we're going to focus on is Matthew, uh, the first part. Is not this the carpenter's son? Now here comes the contradiction. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? And and are his sisters here? So, so did you catch that? In Mark, they're saying, is this not the carpenter? But in Matthew, it says, is this not the carpenter's son? So this is a major contradiction, right? So is Jesus the carpenter's son? Well, yes, Jesus was a carpenter's son. Joseph was a carpenter. Um, and then Mark, is this is Jesus the carpenter? Well, yeah, yeah, Jesus was a carpenter. <laughs> Folks, he was a carpenter's son, and he was a carpenter. So both are true. It's not really a contradiction, but this is the things they put on their website, the atheist website. All right, let's hit the next one. Where was Jesus when he healed the blind man? According to Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 39, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, I'm not going to read till 39. All we need is 35. As he drew near to Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, hold on to your seats. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and 47. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Again, I'm not going to read the whole story. So one story has him coming into Jericho. The other one has him going out of Jericho. All right. So which one is true? And and I, I just want to say that if I didn't have the answer, your faith, your theology should not be shaken. But we do have the answer. Um, do you, have you ever heard of the Twin Cities of Jericho? They were right next to each other. The old city of Jericho had been destroyed, but it was still there. 
and actually there were still people living among the ruins. The Romans rebuilt the second city of Jericho. And again, they were right next to each other. So both of these could be right. I'm not going to argue and say that they're, they need to be right. I really, it really doesn't bother me what you believe, but no one's faith is getting pierced over this. So look it up, the twin cities of Jericho, the old Jericho that was destroyed, but, you know, it, the city was still there. There was people still living there. And then the Romans had built a um, city of Jericho. So they're right next to each other. So literally he could have been coming out of one and into another. All right, next. Oh yes, my favorite. What time was Jesus crucified? I get this question all the time. Uh, let's look at Mark 15, 24 to 25. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Okay, third hour, this was 9 a.m. Third hour, this was 9 a.m. Now, let's go to John. John chapter 19, verses 14. Begin at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Six, S-I-X, sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Uh, the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So what is the sixth hour? That's 6 a.m. That's 6 a.m. So one passage of scripture of God's holy word without any error say that he was crucified at the third hour, 9 a.m. And the other one says the sixth hour, 6 a.m. So here's what you need to know. The Jewish day began at 6 a.m. It began at 6 a.m. The Roman day begins at, same thing, my day begins at midnight, 12 a.m. Okay? So the trial before Pilate was at 6 a.m. after Jewish trials through the night. And the crucifixion was at 9 a.m., according to the scripture. So there's no contradictions there. You got to do a little, a little thinking. So one of them is telling us about Roman day. The other one is talking or Roman time. The other one is Jewish time. So if the days begin at separate times, that's depending on how you read this. So the trial before Pilate was at 6 a.m. And that's our John 19 passage. And after this was after the Jewish trials. Remember, the Jews had him first. And again, I'm using the Jews as John did in his gospel. The Jews had him first, the authority. And uh, that was through the night. Remember, they came through the night in the garden. But yes, he was crucified at 9 a.m. Um, oh, this is a simple one. How did Judas die? So Matthew 27, 5 tells us that he hung himself. He he threw down the pieces of silver, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But if we look at Acts 1.18, they're referring to Judas and how he died. They said, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. Who's ready for dinner? So falling headlong, middle burst open, entrails gushed out. So it's, it's the same story. Judas hung himself. So either the, the rope or the branch broke or it was cut down. Somebody found him. They cut him down. The body fell. And when it fell, 
that's when the uh, entrails gushed out. <laughs> and lastly, before we get into the major variants in the New Testament, who carried the cross? Who carried the cross? According to Matthew 27, verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. All right, let's go to Mark 15, 21. Let's see what Mark says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So same thing, Simon, the Cyrene. Luke 23, 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming from the country. Okay, so they made, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Simon had to carry the cross for Jesus. So it sounds like we're all in agreement here. Oh, but wait, we have the Apostle John. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they're similar, and John is sometimes on his own. But John says, and John chapter 19, verse 17, and uh, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. So John writes nothing about Simon, the Cyrene. He says he carried, uh, bearing his own cross. So I, I don't know. Do I, do I even have to comment? I mean, uh, three people say this other man helped or did it while Jesus got weak. John didn't mention it. Just because somebody doesn't mention something doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, if Jesus, if if John is just making his theological point of, you know, theologically and, and physically and literally, Jesus bearing his own cross, you know, um, I don't think there's a contradiction there. Is it me? Is it just me? I don't see a problem. But um, that's why we have four people that's writing from their own, um, two of them writing from their own memory, the Holy Spirit helping them as we learned last episode. But we're also seeing two from the reports of, 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 um, actual apostolic authority. And so it's, it's all, it's all good in, in my opinion, but I just want everyone to know that these are what people come at me with the atheists and and this is what their problems are and these are the contradictions so though these are nothing these are part of the 1% but these are nothing so um we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk about the major ones all right so this is the portion where we actually discuss some major variants these are the ones that I would say uh you definitely need to study so the first one is 1 John 5:7 and everyone calls this the Trinitarian proof text. So 1 John 5, 7, for there are three that testify. And then verse 8 says, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Earliest copies do not have this. In fact, less than 10 manuscripts have this included. So none of which are earlier than the 10th century. So that's bad as well. So earliest copies do not have it. Less than 10 manuscripts do have it, but none of them are earlier than the 10th century. So Greek church fathers, they never quoted from this. They debated the Trinity all the time. It was certainly added. So this was, this is, verse 7 was certainly added. It's not a conspiracy. It was never there. And that, that's my take. That's my stance. It was never there. Nothing was taken out. 
It's true information, but it wasn't a part of the original and majority of copies. Now, remember what I said. The early church fathers, they never quoted it. However, they debated the Trinity all the time. You understand? So when they call this the Trinitarian proof text, it's like everything is laid on this pillar. Like if we don't have this, we don't have the Trinity. But that's not true, of course. The doctrine of the Trinity was established without this particular verse. If you are a Christian who trusts in God's word, then you must believe in the Trinity. And if you're a Christian that believes in the Trinity, I'm, I'm telling you, you did not come to believe in the Trinity because 1 John 5, 7. Take, take this verse out. You still read the Bible and we still have a Trinity. Like it's okay to say, yep, that, that was added. Now let's get to the longer ending of Mark. Mark 16, 9 to 20. Now, this longer ending of Mark is in most manuscripts. However, it's not in our earliest, best, reliable manuscripts. It is marked in manuscripts as a possible, a possibility. Mark ends abruptly, and someone along the way wanted to finish the story. This person or people had good intentions, in my opinion. Understand that Matthew and Luke and Acts was used to create this ending. If we take this out, we lose nothing. There's nothing to lose. Mark ends with the resurrection. We don't lose anything if we choose to exclude this passage. And you can do that. You can say the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 to 20, is added. That's what I would say. And I would choose not to use it. Now, I want to say that it can be preached if you choose to, listen, any of these variants, if I was preaching, I would say, I would say exactly what I just said. And what I'm saying is the longer ending of Mark, it's not like it's not able to be preached or at least taught. Okay. Now preached as the word of God, that's, that's another story, but it, this story or the, or the ending is just like the next one uh, that we're going to discuss. It's able to be at least taught. So when I, you know, when a preacher is preaching, obviously when I say it can be preached, I'm not saying it can be preached as theanustas, but it can be preached. There's nothing in it that's contradictory to the word of God as a whole. Um, but if you choose to take it out, if you say, I don't, I'm not going to use this because, you know, the majority of scholars would say it's added. Well, then you don't preach it. You say, we're skipping over that. Now, to my churches who handle snakes and drink poison, <laughs> if you don't use this longer in even mark, then, then yeah, you, you lose that. If, if you wish to dance with snakes and drink poison, you got to lose this belief because nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about handling snakes or drinking poison? If we're talking about the apostles, they can drink poison and handle snake or be bitten by a snake or something, you know, um, and they'll be okay because the apostles had a special mission from Christ. And I'll just very quickly bring up the um, Paul shipwrecked, was bitten by a poisonous snake, and he shook it off into the fire. So that, that would be a, uh, an application from that. But to be clear, 
I can read this passage and still know that I'm not supposed to handle poisonous snakes or drink poison. Um, I can read that and say this was a specific, you would say, miracle for the apostles as they did those other miracles, as they were able to do other miracles. So um, obviously it's not for me or you to go out and handle snakes and drink poison. Yet, there's some people out there that do. Mark 16, 9-20 was absolutely added, and it is not a part of the original. Someone, I think, I believe, with good intentions, used Matthew, Luke, and Acts, and saw Mark that it ends abruptly, at least in their opinion, and added this. But, thank God that he has given us wisdom to for people smarter than you and I that can figure it out and say, hey, this is this is not right. This is not coherent. So how does Mark 16, how does the book of Mark really end? Mark 16, verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and astonish, astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And this is, of course, ending with the resurrection. But what is added later is Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. She went out and told um, those who had been with him, told the told the uh, disciples, of course. They mourned, they wept. Jesus appeared to two disciples. Uh, verse 12, after these things, he appeared to the 11 remaining disciples. Uh, he said, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whosoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents and uh, with their hands, and they will drink poison, but it won't hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Did Jesus say that? Well, we know that Jesus gave the apostles a certain anointing uh, that we saw prominently in the Gospels and in the epistle. So um, it ends, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So there it is. There it is. This does not belong in the Bible. However, it still can be taught and preached. There's still some good things in there, and the information is from uh, Matthew, Luke, and Acts. And finally, the last major variant is John 7:53 to chapter 8, verse 11. It's, uh, we call it the pericope adultery. Now, it's the woman caught in adultery. Uh, I did a episode about this really early on in season one. Um, I don't know what episode it was, but you can go there for the the details of it. But this story, the story of the woman caught in adultery, does not um, appear. It does not belong in John. Let me say it that way. The longer ending of Mark actually has more evidence for that story than this story. So remember when I said it's in most manuscripts, but it's not in the earliest or best reliable manuscripts? Well, this that has more evidence than the woman caught in adultery story. So this is a story that is found in other parts of John and also in Luke. So again, for more details, you can go back and listen to that full episode. But um, this story, if you read 
right before the story in John, and you get down right before 753, John 753, don't read it, just skip to chapter 8, verse 12, you will see a smooth flow. And this story is kind of just put in there. And so it's found in other copies, the story. It's like a story trying to find a home. It's found in the margins. Uh, it's like a marginal story of others. And, and it's just trying to find a place. And so we see it in other parts of John and other parts of Luke. And it eventually found the home in John in between the two passages. It's a great story. The story is popular. It seems true. There's, Again, it can be preached. It can be taught. But my opinion is it should be prefaced with this information because a lot of people don't know this. And again, I beg you to look down at your footnotes. Your Bible will tell you that it is not in most manuscripts. Um, it has all the marks of a true Jesus story dealing with the leaders at the time. I mean, they're... they're um, they're trying to trick him into condemning the woman. Uh, by the way, we're never told it's 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 Mary Magdalene. Everybody somehow has joined. I think Pope uh, Pope Gregory the Great. I might be wrong. Go listen to the full episode. Um, but it's someone deemed her as the woman caught in adultery along the way. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, Jew, the, the Jews at the time, I'm using John's language, the Jews at the time, the authority, were trying to trick Jesus into condemning her. They didn't bring the man that was caught in adultery, and he ended up trying to, or he, uh, Jesus was successful in saying, you know, and not condemning her or forgiving her of her sins. And, and he, you know, just like all the other gospels, they're trying to uh, trick him into something and he knows what to say. So it's, it's a very believable story, a very believable story. And this is the part where Jesus writes in the sand. And, oh, boy, you probably heard a thousand pastors tell you what they thought Jesus wrote in the sand. <laughs> We're not told. We don't know. I'm, you know, that's one of those questions I'm asking all the time. What did Jesus write in the sand? Well, it didn't tell us. And then I go to, and the story is not even in the Bible. Now, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, we are finished with the section that I titled The Major Variants. What do you mean? We just went over three. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the three major variants. Those are the ones that I believe all Christians should know and study and know why they're major variants. But that's it. That's it. So if you only had a Bible with these variants the words or passages that were not original, you would still be equipped as a believer. So let's say if we took out the woman caught in adultery, let's took, take out the longer ending of Mark, let's take out uh, the Trinitarian proof text, you still would be equipped as a believer. Your Bible wouldn't contain heresy or be corrupted. As we continue to find manuscripts, we continue to see consistency in God preserving his word. And that's what I love, that we see a consistency. We don't see some outlandish like, oh, there's four people. It's the father, son, and the cousin. Or it's not like we're finding discrepancies all over the place. No, no, it's very consistent. So 
Book of Jude audience, check out Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Book of Tim Jude, T-I-M-J-U-D-E. I post frequently. I give information, specific information about the uh, episodes and series that we are going through, things that I cannot fit into the episode time. Um, we can also interact. And as always, prayer requests are welcome. Love to pray for you. So hop on over there. Check us out at Book of Tim Jude. As promised, I want to share with you the major resources that I used along the way uh, for the Bible series lest you think it all came from my head. <laughs> I'm not that smart. So there are theologians and scholars. Uh, this is not something you just Google and find somebody's opinion. These are scholarly, uh, peer-reviewed scholarly works, articles, books, theologians, people that have proven themselves. And so it's a long list. I'll probably post um, the list on the social media, but... Um, just to give you a few here, we have Dan Wallace, leading New Testament scholar, and Bart Ehrman. So remember, Bart Ehrman is, uh, I think he's an atheist or agnostic, uh, but he knows more about the New Testament than you do, I promise you, more than me as well. But, and we've discussed him, um, but what's interesting is Michael Kruger was, guess whose student? He was the student of uh, Bart Ehrman. So that's very that's a very interesting story. Bart Ehrman's uh, doctoral advisor was Bruce Metzger, and that's someone you need to look at and know his work. Bruce Metzger, which is it's 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 awesome to see uh, that he was Bart Ehrman's advisor on his doctoral work. Bart Ehrman was Michael Kruger's uh, New Testament professor, and you should look up what Michael Kruger has done. Uh, in his studies. We also have Dr. James White. We also have Pastor Mike Winger. We also have the work of James Rockford. There's so many theologians of today, which is the list I just gave you, but also from years ago. You should know early church fathers and the Puritans and, and some of the um, ones that are no longer with us, these theologians, these scholars that have, like I said, there's nothing that comes up today for crying out loud, 2022, that's going to wreck anybody's faith. I mean, we're going to have to find biblical manuscripts, a lot of them from early, early, early on to beat out what we have today. And it's just not going to happen. It's It hasn't happened and it's not going to happen. But um, anyway, I want to give you the resources. I don't want to be your, I'm not your pastor, and I don't want to be the person you... Um, just learn from and say, okay, well, if he says it, no, 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 please never, never just take it from my word. I'm giving you resources so that you can do more research. I believe that there's at least one of you that is going to get inspired like I did and keep going. Because again, you, do you think we just went in great detail on the Old and New Testament? No, no, we barely scratched the surface. And to some of you, this might be a lot, and that's okay. But to maybe one or two of you, this is just the beginning, and that's my passion. That's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about people hearing uh, the gospel. So um, those are your resources. I will uh, post them when I can so you can do more on your own. Now I want to get to two more scholars and their resources from an article, scholarly article, and we're going to 
close with this. I think this is a great summation of everything that we have uh, talked about from the Old Testament to the New. And so I want to quote from these two as we close. W. Robert Godfrey, Bible-believing Christians agree that the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament found in the Holy Bible make up the canon of the Scriptures. These are the Scriptures that God has inspired and preserved as His Word for His people. Godfrey continues, Christians were clearly aware that God was giving his people in the New Testament church additional scriptures. Although the early churches were small and persecuted and had many difficulties in communicating with one another, there emerged in the early decades after Pentecost a definite consensus about about most of the books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, Acts, the letters of Paul, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John, 21 of the 27 books were accepted very widely, pointing to a strong recognition in the lives of the churches that these books had been given to them by God. Mark E. Ross, in his article, The Inerrancy of Scripture, says the New Testament presents the same view of the Holy Scriptures. Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus was born of a virgin in order to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 and identifies the words of those of God, Matthew 19.4. Peter says that the scripture had had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, Acts 1.16. In his sermon at Pentecost, Peter quotes words that were spoken through the prophet Joel, quote-unquote, as words that God declares, Acts 2, 16 and 17. He says God foretold the sufferings of Christ by the mouth of his prophets, Acts 3, 18 and 21. In Acts 4, 24-26, Peter cites Psalm 2 as the words of the Sovereign Lord, quote, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, verse 25. Ross continues, in speaking to the disbelieving Jews of Rome, Paul prefaces a quotation from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 with the words, the Holy Spirit was right in saying your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Acts 28, 25. When Paul preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, he thanked God that when they Uh, Receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul expected the same respect from from them for his written word and put them under oath to have his letter read in the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.27. More from Ross, in Hebrews 1, a number of quotations from the Old Testament are introduced as words spoken by God. And in the same book, verses from Psalm 95 are cited as what the Holy Spirit says, quote-unquote. This is in uh, Hebrews 3, 7. 
Also, Peter teaches that the word of the Lord Jesus given through the apostles is of equal authority to the word spoken through the prophet, 2 Peter 3.2. And he specifically places the letters of Paul among the scripture, 2 Peter 3.16. Characteristically, then, the New Testament treats the words of the scriptures as the very words of God, given through the prophets and apostles by the Holy Spirit. From its earliest days, the church has confessed the scriptures to be the very words of God. And for this reason, the church has confessed that the scriptures are free from error in all that they teach. Clement of Rome wrote, look very carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. So also, Irenaeus, the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the word of God, his and his spirit. Origen wrote, the scriptures were written by the spirit of God. Augustine held the same view, for I confess to your charity that I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. This view of the early church fathers persisted through the Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas, commonly regarded as the greatest of the medieval theologians, states it like this, the author of the Holy Writ is God. And John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, wrote, Indeed, since the entirety of Holy Scripture is the word of the Lord, no testimony could possibly be better, more certain, and or more effectious. For if God, who cannot lie, has spoken something in his own Scripture, which is itself the mirror of his will, then it is true. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. We have arrived at the end of the Bible series. We have completed season two of the book of Jude. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for getting excited over this. I hope that you take this information and go forward with it. I hope that this doesn't leave your memory. I hope that you have a, an open Bible an open mind and a, and a pencil and a pad and writing notes and being able to uh, defend the Word of God if the occasion arises. This has been a lot of work. This has been a lot of time, but if, if but one of you has received this, I, I give God all the glory and I thank Him for this opportunity. Uh, this is the last episode of season two. This is the completion of the Bible series. So when we return for season three, I do not know how long the break's going to be, but when we come, I have a fantastic series that we are going to start. I can't wait. I'm just going to, should I tell you? Maybe I should. Yeah, I should tell you. We are going to be discussing the book of Revelation. Now, before you get excited, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. What I'm going to teach is something I learned from someone else, and they have, have material and resources on it that obviously I'm going to share with you. But uh, it's Revelation, but it's John's use of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Don't come to season three with all of your eschatologies and your camps and your pre-mill and pre-trib and all that stuff. Forget all that. 
you'll get lost. Come with an open mind. Come with a clean slate and say, okay, let's look at how John used the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And if you remember a few episodes ago when I was talking about the disciples using the Old Testament and quoting, John did it the most. And it's mostly him alluding to the Old Testament. It's not it's not so much as a direct quote, but um, it's him alluding to it. It's taking the readers back to uh, the the Old Testament. So that's going to be exciting. You will not look at Revelation the same after this series, after after season three starts. I I, I promise you. You will not think about it the same. And then when you hear other people talk about their eschatologies, their camps, their pre-mill and all that, you're going to start saying, whoa, wait a minute, how did you even get that? So until we begin season three, you can still get on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can still message me. Prayer requests are always welcome. And I still will be posting, um, as I try to do every day, Monday through Friday, uh, try to post something um, important for you, something to research, things of that nature. So until then, go out and make disciples.